Alrighty. If we could take out our Bibles now and find Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. As we continue our mini-series just talking about the doctrine of the church, I think this is a good second series of uh, what we did for Advent, which is asking the question, who is Jesus? And then we go into who is the church or what is the church? It wasn't really planned that way, but it goes hand in hand together. As I mentioned earlier, it'll probably be just a couple more weeks and we'll jump back into Romans 9. I'm actually using this time, I might have mentioned this before, but I'm using this time. I'm fairly familiar with, with the doctrine of the church and teaching through these things as I've done a number of times. So it's helpful to not have to spend as much time here and I'm preparing at the same time for Romans 9 through 11 because that is requiring me a little more time and research and study and I'm enjoying that and things are coming together, but I wanted to make sure I got a grasp on the whole before we jumped in and started looking at the individual parts of Romans 9 through 11 in just a couple of weeks. But we're starting in Acts chapter 2 because this is when the church was born. The church began on this day of Pentecost, and we've had a number of messages that have talked about that up until this point. So I just want to read once again the first four verses, and then let's jump into this week's message. Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, or remember, was being fulfilled, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let's keep reading for just a minute here. Verse 5, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language or dialect. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? All right, let's end our reading there and pray and ask God's blessing on the passage. Father, the preaching of the Word is your idea, and it must be accompanied with the leadership and guidance of the Spirit, both in the presentation and preparation. But I pray now as I speak and teach and exhort that you would help me do that and give us all ears to hear and eyes to see, and hearts to understand what you want us to about your church from Acts chapter 2. 
We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. What is the church? The Bible gives us several metaphors or analogies and help us understand what the church is. And if, by the way, side note, if you know the difference between a metaphor and an analogy and can explain it to me after the service, I'd appreciate that. I tried to look that up and I don't get it. I don't get the difference. So, whether this is a metaphor or an analogy, I don't know. But he gives us several of them to help us understand what the church is. As an example, we've talked about this. The church is the body of Christ. As a matter of fact, Romans 12, verses 4 to 5 says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. This metaphor helps us see our inseparable connection to the head of the body, which is Christ, and our inseparable connection to the other members of the body because we're all in one body. Helps us see that relationship. But another major metaphor or analogy that the Bible uses and is very important is that of the church, now listen, as the temple of God. The church is the temple of God. What is a temple? Well, we're having one built here. They call it that anyway. Uh, The Mormons are building one in town, a temple. A temple is not exclusive to Christianity. It really didn't even begin with Christianity. The concept of temples were throughout all different nations and peoples, religious groups, that would build a house in which their God would dwell. Build a house in which their God would live. So they would build a structure, and in it, of course, they would put a, an idol that represented that God, or perhaps idols, in which uniquely their God dwelled, a place that they could go and worship Him, in which they would have their own forms of priesthoods who would be working for their God or gods. It was a sacred place. Of course, Israel was given first the instructions in Exodus of the tabernacle. That was going to be a portable temple that they could move around with and they would have uh, the holy place and the most holy place and It was a place of worship, but it was, make no mistake, the place in which God uniquely dwelled. Now, of course, they knew that God was omnipresent, and so He was everywhere in all His fullness at all times, but yet uniquely He would dwell in that sacred place, that sacred space, the tabernacle. And then, of course, under Solomon, they built the permanent structure of the temple, in Jerusalem, and it was quite a glorious temple. It was positioned strategically to be the 
focal point of the entire nation, saying God is in our midst. The city of Ephesus had a temple, and I don't know if you know this or not, it was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It was the house of the goddess Artemis or Diana, depending if you were Greek or Roman. They had a great statue of her in there. There was a poet, his name was uh, Antipater of Sidon, and he traveled and visited these wonders of the world. But when he saw this temple in Ephesus, this is what he said, I have set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots, and the statue of Zeus by the Alphaeus, and the hanging gardens, and the colossus of the sun, and the huge labor of the high pyramids, and the vast tomb of uh, Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis, that one in Ephesus, that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy, and I said, lo, apart from Olympus, the sun has never looked on aught so grand. All of the Ephesians to whom Paul wrote were very familiar with that temple. Most, if not all, probably all of them had been saved out of worshiping Artemis or Diana. They were familiar with that temple, so it's no surprise then that Paul would draw on that and say these words about the church. Listen to this in Ephesians 2. 19 to 22, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being himself the cornerstone in whom, now listen to this language, this whole structure, he's talking about a building here, isn't he? Being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together, listen to this, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Perhaps these Ephesian believers, they come to faith in Christ. They're saved right out of the idolatry of that city, that temple being the focal point. Maybe one of their questions is, where is our temple? Where's the temple of our God? Where do we go to get to that temple? Where does our God, listen, live, inhabit uniquely? The answer to that question is, Paul would say, oh, friends, you're the temple of God. You, the people, are the dwelling place of God through His Spirit. That is a powerful concept to them. You think they, they lived within, maybe they worship within eyesight, I don't know, of this magnificent temple in all its grandeur and glory and splendor. Here they are, a group of Misfit believers coming together. And Paul says, you're the temple. 
Jesus said, I will build my church. He's building a temple. He's building in this time a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Those of you who are studying with me on Sunday nights in the time period of the rebuilding of the temple, and some of you I know are going through a Bible study in Zechariah and the prophecies about that time and helping them rebuild. Zerubbabel was the Davidic descendant leading over Israel at that time when they were building that temple. But I want to say something to you very clearly here, biblically speaking, one far greater than Zerubbabel has come, and he's building a far greater temple than they could have ever imagined. It's the people of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the temple. I hope by saying this, you, when you read the Old Testament and get to part in Exodus, where you kind of wade through the blueprints for the temple. Don't feel guilty if you do. You reading about cubits and structures and poles and clamps and all these, and you, you kind of are wading through it. Understand, friends, God has a far greater picture in mind that the new covenant believer gets to look back on and say, well, first and foremost, Christ is the temple. Isn't that what he said to them? He said, he said destroy this temple and he was right there in front of the second temple. And he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. They thought, you're crazy. You know how long it took to build this temple? The gospel writer says, no, he was talking about the temple of his body. And now in this age, he's building this structure. He's the cornerstone. The teaching of the apostles is the foundation. The structure's being built up. Peter calls us living stones. You're being built up as living stones into a dwelling place of God through His Spirit. Paul told the Corinthians church this, or actually asked them in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, he said, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. And that, of course, was in the context of sexual immorality. He's like, you're taking your body and you're joining it to a prostitute. Don't you know who you are and what you are in Christ? You are the temple of the living God who dwells within you. This is a motivation then for holiness of our bodies because we are temple of the Holy Spirit. The age of the new covenant, the church age in which we live is a temple building project and we are that temple. And the reason I begin with this is because, friends, we need to understand that the church is comprised of Holy Spirit-filled people. And what you read about in Acts chapter 2 in the birth of the church, the primary focal point of that beginning of the church age 
is the coming of the Holy Spirit and His indwelling of His people in a unique, new, exciting, powerful, glorious way. When the temple was built in the Old Testament, there was a manifestation of the glory of God. Do you remember that scene? The, ma- the majestic glory of God, the priest could not stand to minister. <laughs> but now our, we are, Christian, the place in which the glory of God resides in us and through us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that began in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit arrives upon the church. It was prophesied that the uniqueness of this new covenant era would be a unique working of the Holy Spirit of God in His people. Something they had not experienced. Not to the extent that they would experience it. This is exactly what Paul is referencing in Acts chapter 2. And in verse 16, remember what's happening up to this point. They're speaking in foreign languages. The word tongues is deceiving because of how I think it is misused these days. These are languages. In each of these people, these Jews who had come here for Pentecost were people that were spread out throughout the Roman Empire and they each had different dialects that they spoke. And now they're coming together and what they're noticing strangely enough is that these people, these early disciples, were prophesying the works of God in their individual dialects. Are these not Galileans who have their own dialect? How do they understand ours so fluently that they are proclaiming the works of God, you see? Clearly something powerful was happening. Peter explains in verse 16, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, declares the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. That's what's happening, he said. This spiritual age, this unique spiritual age of the Holy Spirit of God, uniquely in all of His people, powerfully in all of His people, has arrived. And you're seeing it, says Peter. John the Baptist said this about Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Now listen to this. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I'm baptizing you with water, but someone's coming. Did you know Jesus was a Baptist? 
Jesus the Baptist is coming, and he's got a far greater baptism. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit of God, you see. Jesus said this the night before his crucifixion, John 14, verses 16 to 7, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Who's that helper? Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you now and will be in you, you see. Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verse 33, if you look at that verse, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, just as he said he was going to do, he has poured out on this, out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. This was the promised age of the unique working of the Holy Spirit of God. According to those verses in John 14, let's put those back up, you'll notice the Spirit of truth is someone the world cannot receive. They don't have the Spirit of truth. We have the Spirit of truth. It neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him now For he dwells with you now and will be, starting in Acts 2, in you. That's what's happening in Pentecost. Being fulfilled. The Spirit or the receiving of the Spirit is reserved for those who believe in Jesus. It's his disciples from the beginning that received the Spirit, and that's what's continued through the church age. In other words, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are a combined package to the people of God. When you have Christ, you have His Spirit within you. And what would mark off the church, or who would mark the church off in this age, was this powerful indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling His people as the temple God. Now, please don't misunderstand. The Spirit was present and active and empowering people under the Old Covenant as well. Just as we learned in chapter 4 that Abraham was saved by faith like we trust in the provided promise, Jesus Christ, he trusted in God's promise of the one to come. He was saved in the same way, and we have to believe that God worked in his heart in order to do that, or he would have been a rebel like everyone else, that he had possession of the Holy Spirit. We see the Holy Spirit working among uh, the prophets and others at special times. We see the Spirit of God there. He always was there. He was with the disciples. That's why Jesus said, He's with you. You know Him. He's with you. That's why you're sitting in this room, and that's why you're following me. He's working in you. But this was a unique time of a unique outpouring of the Spirit. And you notice from Acts 2 and him quoting from Joel, All of God's people get the fullness of the Spirit poured out on all, young and old, 
men and women, even slave or free, doesn't matter. They're all getting the Holy Spirit, and that includes you. Christian, if you don't leave this room with anything else, please leave with this fact. The Spirit of God dwells in you. The Spirit of God dwells in you if you are in Christ. How often the church needs to be reminded of the person and work of the Holy Spirit within them. Paul said earlier, we read this in Ephesians 3, didn't we? That God is able to do abundantly above and beyond all that we could ask or think according to what? The power at work within us. We have His power through His Spirit in us. So important to see that. I am convinced from the Bible that the key to living a holy and powerful and victorious Christian life is grabbing hold by faith of the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. That in order to walk in holiness, like last week we talked about, right? We are the people of God. We even read it earlier from Peter's letter. You're supposed to be proclaiming the excellencies in your life of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And he says, uh, don't, don't give in to the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct honorable. He's holy. You must be holy. All of those kinds of commands. The way in which we learn to live a holy life is when we know that the Holy Spirit is within us, when we believe it, and we begin to walk by the Spirit. Matter of fact, Paul said as much in Galatians chapter 5. He said, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. That you have the Spirit of God in you. He's the one who empowers us, makes us holy, and transforms us so that we can be powerful and effective witnesses. You take as an example in this very passage of Acts chapter 2, Peter, who 50 days prior to this denied Jesus three times. And fear and frustration at what was happening and misunderstanding, anger perhaps. And here he is 50 days later. In verse 14, he stands up with the eleven. He lifted up his voice and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to those people. In the power of the Holy Spirit. And it worked. When he was done, the Spirit brought that conviction. They say, what should we do? I'll repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a powerful witness. The Spirit transforms people. 
Do you know what your weaknesses are? Good. Get your weaknesses in your mind and settle in with them because you by nature are far weaker than you could ever imagine. But then settle in your mind and heart that God by His grace has poured His Spirit out in you. And so now, by the Spirit, you're far more powerful than you could ever imagine. The church is going to understand what it is and what it's about. It can't miss this central feature of our identity from the very beginning, who are we? The people who have received the Spirit. Believed in Jesus? Yes. And received the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit. How else could we ever become holy people? The passions of our flesh wage war, said Peter, against our soul. How many times have we felt the struggle with our own sin? I, couldn't, I can't get over this. I'm never going to win. Well, that's exactly what the devil wants you to do. He wants you to forget who you are and what you've received. Who is the gift of the Holy Spirit in you. That's why it's a gift, you see. Given to you by God. Enabling you now to be God's holy people. I left us last week with the ad admonition. You are the identifiable people of God in this age. Do not be like Israel who failed at that. You be the church now and live to the glory of God. You be obedient to Him. But friends, we can't do that without the Spirit. Last week I said, be holy because God is holy. Now I say, you can be holy because God has given you Himself in the Holy Spirit. So walk by the Spirit now. I'm convinced we need to be worked up into this. Like a, a general who speaks to the troops before they go into battle. Or a coach who gets the team in the locker room and says, you can do this. Here's why. Get your eyes on the prize. Do this. Except ours is different. I say to you, this is what God expects of you and you can't do it. And no matter how far inside you, you dig deep or no, how, no matter how much you try or how much effort you put in, you can't do it unless you do what God requires by the power of His Spirit that enables you, church. He enables you to be holy unto the Lord in all your conduct need a reminder of that. When we have blown it in sin and we are in discourage, we're discouraged, what we need and how you need to counsel others in that position and you need to be counsel that position is twofold. Number one, look to Jesus now. 
It's like John Newton was talking about. Look to your great high priest. He's done away with all of your sin. It's not held against you. Your sin is great, but His mercy is more. And where sin abounds, guess what? Grace superabounds. And even James in his sometimes seemingly harsh tone says, but he gives more grace as we keep blowing it, right? We look to Christ, but the second part of that encouragement must be that through Christ you have now His Holy Spirit so that you can be victorious over this particular sin, this particular setback. You can win by faith in Christ through the power of His Holy Spirit. The church is the recipients of those Old Testament promises and prophecies of the Spirit to come. It's all part of the new covenant. We're about to celebrate the Lord's table here. And what we are celebrating in that is the new covenant, that we're the new covenant of God's, or new covenant uh, God's people in this age, that because of Christ, we're in the new covenant. Okay? We celebrate that. In Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33, here's a connection to that that will lead us right into the Lord's Supper. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Pause. What is the mystery that was hid for ages with God? That the Gentiles are fellow heirs? of the promises, of the covenant, of the Christ and everything He brings. So when you read House of Israel and House of Judah, take that literally, and God's doing that as He saves Jewish people. But understand now, we've been incorporated into the new body. It's to you, church. You're recipients of it. This is what made some of the Jews in the first century so angry because these kind of promises were to them. You mean they're to Gentiles as well? Absolutely. That's the mystery. They said, well, show me that in the Old Testament. And you'd say, well, I can't. Because it was hidden in the mind and heart of God and only revealed in the New. That's why i got to show you from the New Testament, you see. But listen to this. It's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Pause again. Israel's main event that formed them as a people happened at Mount Sinai when God gave to them the law written on tablets of stone. That's the main event for that people. But they broke that covenant. Now, there's a new main event that happened for the people of God. Pentecost. 
And they receive, this is the formation. Do we not believe the church begins at Pentecost? God has his people gathered in one place, assembled together. And he fulfills what we're about to read here to those people in the outpouring of the Spirit. Now my new entity of Jew and Gentile is formed, you see. It's a different type of covenant. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Do you know what was the problem with the vast majority of Jewish people in the old covenant? They couldn't keep the law because they were sinners who were not changed in their hearts. So what God had to do as a part of the new covenant is he says, I'm just going to put my laws in their hearts. Gets even clearer, and I'll leave us with this next one. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. Listen to this. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's going to be my work in you by my spirit that's going to make you a holy people. I keep calling us the new covenant people of God for a reason. Because we are, by God's grace, the recipients of these wonderful, beautiful promises in Christ. The key feature that sets us off from the rest of the world and even unbelieving Israel is that we have the Spirit of God, the new heart He promises, and the ability to live and glorify Him. Last week I said, Christian, be holy. You must be holy in all your conduct. But holiness by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps or rigidity of life or law-focusedness, any other of those things does not work. It's holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit. This morning I was preparing for this and I had to just stop and I said, Father, please now, by your Spirit, help me capture this. I think it was Einstein who said, most humans only use about 10% of their brain. How you figure that out, I don't know. The question was always, well, how, what would happen if we learned to use 50% of our brain? I'm not going to divide the Holy Spirit up into percentages. But let's think about the percentage of our life. that we actually live by the power of the Spirit. Me, myself, because this is what I had to pray about this morning. What percentage of my life am I displaying His fruit? I mean only in the top three. Love, joy, peace. Not to mention the others. Let's just talk about the love. I mean joy. 
and peace. The key to living a victorious and powerful and fruitful Christian life is to understand that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit whom we have from God who dwells within us and learning by faith to walk by the Spirit. Let's pray and ask God to help us to do that. Father, we see from your word who we are. Our situations, our feelings don't always match that. There is no temptation that has taken any of us that is not common to man. So I would imagine that there are people in this room who are discouraged in the Christian life. Father, you know the hearts of all. They're discouraged. Maybe they feel, Father, like they just can't get their act together. Father, let them see, first of all, Jesus, the one who had his act together for us. Let them see him, please. And beyond that, may they be able to see the power of the Holy Spirit that regardless of what the past has looked like, is always willing and able to make a new present. Help them to see His power that has set them free from sin and shame and guilt and fear. Please do that work among your people. We ask it in the name of Jesus, the only name we can pray it in. In His name and for His sake, amen.